Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And folks, it is my distinct pleasure today to be hosting Mr. Alan Cross on the show. Uh, Alan's a guy that I've been listening to since the 90s on a show, The Ongoing History of New Music, uh, which I believe is the longest-running music doc in the history of... Uh, the world, the universe. We'll yeah. just go with that. <laughs> uh, Alan's also done a lot of other cool things, like The Secret History of Rock. Uh, he was the voice of radio station Indie 88. He developed Music Technology Group and Event Series, uh, The Alan Cross Guide to Alternative Rock, and something called Major League Mixes, a company that works with sports teams like the Toronto Maple Leafs to develop their in-game uh, song mix, which is pretty interesting. And if that wasn't enough, uh, he's also a writer, he's a podcaster, he's a consultant, a music biographer, and he's also a lecturer. So uh, first question, how'd you, how'd you find time for me today? <laughs> well, you know, when you're, you're for, totally freelance and you're always looking for the next job, that's basically what you end up doing. You look for the next, the next gig. And I've been fortunate enough to be in this business for going on 36 years. Yeah. So you just pick up stuff as you go along. I don't have any real portable skills, so I've been kind of lucky in <laughs> being able to find some people who are willing to pay me to do certain things, and that's that's great. Um, <laughs> I have that. I got to keep doing that for a little while longer because there is still a mortgage, and I just spent a lot of money fixing my basement. Yeah, yeah, great. In addition to the things that I mentioned, is there anything else that you're working on? Uh, just I do TV narration, corporate okay. narration. I just came from a gig where I did something for Scotiabank. Cool. Uh, I do some commercial work. Uh, you, you know what? I have a very hard... My parents still don't understand what I do for a living. So okay. when I go home, they say, well, what have you been doing? How's work? I say, yeah. okay, well, what part of work? <laughs> There's just so many different aspects of it that uh, I have a hard time... You should see my resume. It's just really cluttered <laughs> because oh, there's so many yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Which is great, though. I guess. It's, yeah. it's, it's nice. I never tend to look back. Uh -huh. I always look forward. I mean, every once in a while, people will say, do you remember this? You did that, and you were there, and you saw this, and you talked to this person. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I did. Yeah. But I, I never really ever spend any time looking back because I'm always looking forward to what's coming next, which yeah. was why I got into the business in the first place. Yeah. Uh, because I come from a very long line of teachers. My mother taught grade two for 32 years. Oh, wow. I could not do that. I wanted something <laughs> that would be different every single day and, you know, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. No, I, I think that's fantastic. Comparatively, you, you could be a nine-to-fiver. Well, yeah. Uh, some days I really want to be a nine-to-fiver. Mm. Um, I work almost exclusively out of my house because I've got my office there and my studio there and all my resources and gear there. Yeah. So unless I have to be someplace physically, I spend most of the time in the house and the problem with working that way is that there is a very very thin transparent line between personal and work yes so i wish some days that i could only work nine to five mm -hmm. but it never really works out that way yeah yeah. Not when you're working. Anybody who works at home knows exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm just getting into this now, and and I can definitely see that too. I mean, it's 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 your gig now, right? Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Uh, well, thanks for coming in today. I really oh, appreciate you're welcome. It. So you've got uh, a, a really really great list of tunes here. So we're going to start with uh, the Who won't get fooled again. The songs that make your skin vibrate. This, I believe, is the greatest single rock song ever recorded because. Yeah. It has every single element that 
the greatest rock song requires. Mm -hmm. That is a sense of power and optimism and rebellion and stick it to the man and great guitar playing, great drumming, fantastic bass line, brilliant vocals, and that scream towards the end with Roger Daltrey. I will never get tired of this song. This is 1971. Yeah. And... I had a chance to talk to Pete Townsend about it. And I said, oh, nice. You wrote the greatest rock song ever. And he goes, why? Really? I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, why? I said, well, for all the reasons I explained. He goes, oh, well, that's nice. Thank you. And that was it. <laughs> uh, and then I started getting all geeky. He says, you know, you know that organ sound, you know, you know how, did, how, did, how did you create that? And he goes, oh, I don't remember. I'm like, you don't remember? Oh. Uh, yeah, it was, I th- it was either, I was either using a... EMS VS or I might have processed it through an early ARP. I it, I don't remember. Unbelievable. Okay, thanks, Pete. Great. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that song reminds me of, of uh, like Kiss used to use that um, as they were you know they would drop their you know they had that huge curtain. Mm. And uh, when that scream came on, that iconic scream, the curtain would drop and kind of pump the crowd up a little bit. And I'd seen them a couple times, they, and they used that. Yeah, it's just a fantastic, fantastic song. Uh, your next one is uh, Peter Gabriel's Secret World, but it's the extended live version. You have to go back to the Us tour. Yeah. Uh, the album came from Us, or the song came from the Us album. Yeah. Uh, and on the original album, it's okay. Yeah. It's a okay song. I don't think it was ever released as a single. But when they when Gabriel went on tour, mm-hmm. that song blew up into something much different. It was longer. It uh had choreography mm-hmm. and it was just so spiritually uplifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you saw it performed live, you have to get the DVD version of the Us tour. Okay. The Secret World Live album is okay is is better i mean if you're doing only audio that's what you want mm-hmm. but you need the you need to see it being performed because there's this whole thing at the end where the band makes their exit from the stage okay that is is one of the most innovative ways i've ever seen anybody ever walk off yeah and um it's just again the instrumental nature of it and the drumming is just so Uplifting. I mean, I always get a dopamine shot when I listen to the song. That's yeah. pretty much where it is. And if if I had my ability to be in any band at any time, at any point in the history of rock, I think I would be Peter Gabriel's drummer between 1984 and 1992. Really? I think that would have been uh, uh, just a great gig. Now, uh-huh. I saw that Secret World Live tour yeah. a bunch of times. The first time I saw it, was the dress rehearsal for opening night. Okay. So this was at the Rochester Memorial Auditorium in Rochester, New York. Mm-hmm. The full stage was set up. They had been rehearsing there for a week. And they brought in approximately 60 people. Six zero. Okay. To witness the whole thing perform front to back yeah. with all the stage patter and everything else. So imagine being in that arena and with only 59 other people, plus crew, plus band, watching that whole thing. And yeah. it was, that was my greatest concert experience ever. Wow, yeah. I bet. Very cool. Uh, your next tune, Alan, is uh, by Oasis, Rock and Roll Star. I think it's a song that kicks off definitely, maybe, right? Yep, first yep. record. And 
the song is only marred by an unnecessarily long outro, <laughs> but the the song itself is basically the Oasis manifesto. Uh, he's going to spend some time in the city. There's no easy way out. Tonight he's a rock and roll star. Yeah. And again, it's I can just imagine being, you know, 17, 18, 19 in a band full of piss and vinegar. I am tonight. You know, I got a crappy job. I got a crappy existence otherwise. But tonight, yeah. I'm on stage and I am a rock and roll star. And I think about back in the days when I was in a band a very long time ago. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt. I felt tonight, I'm on stage. You're listening to me. I'm performing. I'm playing. Yeah. You're reacting to the music that's coming from me and my mates. Uh, and there was, there's no other feeling like it. Yeah. And that song, I think... But more than any other, captures what it's like to be young, optimistic, full of energy, and maybe just a little naive when it comes to being a rock star. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And, and this, I, I think, it's a it's a great record. You know, this is their debut record. Definitely, maybe. And and some British polls actually put this head of of Sergeant Pepper's. Yeah, and I understand why. Uh, Sergeant Pepper is a very good album. It's not the Beatles' best album. Mm -hmm. It's an important album for a, a lot of other reasons. Yeah. Uh, but that would be an interesting pub fight, wouldn't it? Oh, for sure. Over pints and, and chips to Definitely. figure out exactly which of those albums is better. Yeah. Which one do you think is? What's your favorite one? I always try not to say best. I say well, my favorite. Okay. As we are talking here, the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper has been released today, yes. May the 26th. And I've had a chance to go through a lot of the outtakes and bonus tracks on this one. Okay. And I've also toured Abbey Road, where this album, that album was made. Mm -hmm. And I know far too much about Sgt. Pepper. Okay. And the technology that, I mean, they MacGyvered that record in a billion <laughs> different ways. With, you know, three-track recorders and four track recorders and bouncing down to other other machines yeah and um i touched one of the pianos that they used one of the five pianos they used for the last chord on oh, a day to life yeah. so in that sense it's my it's my favorite because i have a tactile like a genuine physical uh relationship to that wow. album because i was i was actually there i touched the microphones that they used i was in the control room I touched that piano and wow. stood in the middle of that room, uh, Studio Two, and looked around. And it looks exactly as it did in 1967. Nothing yeah. much has changed. Yeah. And thinking, my God, those notes were first played in this space. It, yeah. It's like a holy thing. Oh, it is. And you know, it's it, the only other. You know, I'm a, such a, a big Beatles fan. You know, every once in a while the Beatles come back, and you realize that these guys did about 237 songs ish yeah, yeah. over their career, and there's just so much good stuff. In a, it's so prolific in a very, very short period. Seven years. Yes. Yeah. Basically seven years. Yeah. And they evolved from what basically a boy band yeah. into one of the most important musical ensembles well, of all time, period. Yes. And um, anybody who says that the Beatles aren't the greatest rock band ever. Like, shut your stupid mouth. You're wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about. Really, you don't. They, are, they were a, a, an absolute marvel. I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, other than the no. fact that, that I'm trying to justify my pick of uh, Sgt. Pepper 
over definitely maybe Mm -hmm. because of that long-term relationship with the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Now that that piano that you talked about, I was there last year, and I didn't, of course, go into the studio. But are the pianos still in the studio? The weird thing is that there is all kinds of gear, old, ancient gear, lining the hallways. Okay. Now, one of the things they asked me not to do was to take pictures of the old gear, new gear, setups in the studios, whatever you like. Yeah. But do not take pictures of the old gear. Okay. Uh, so along the walls in Studio Two, they had a couple of pianos. One of them was one of the um, Dana Life pianos, and the other yeah. one had a little sign on it saying, Lady Madonna Piano, do not no, touch. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, and I asked her, like, wow, where are the other pianos? She goes, oh, they're around here somewhere. <laughs> so glib. You know, they were just so glib about it. Just like, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, Dana Life Piano, whatever. The others are, they're in here somewhere. Oh, my God. Now, you think about what one of those things would fetch at auction. Yeah. I mean, we're talking well into six figures, maybe even seven. Oh, for sure. And they're just there. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now, I know you're a huge Beatles fan. Are you a, and they say, you know, with Beatles, you're either a Paul guy or a John. I'm a Paul guy. Okay. I I don't know why, but I I always gravitated towards Paul. And I, you know what? I'll defend Wings. Yeah. Most of it except silly love songs. Yeah. But I I really enjoyed, you know, the greatest Bond theme is Live and Let Die. Yes. Uh, The Band on the Run album is, is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's stuff from Venus and Mars and Wings at the Speed of Sound. I mean, this is, I think it's, yeah. I like Paul McCartney. I mean, even before Wings, there was Ram, right? Well, all that, you know, yeah. all the way back to when he was doing Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that, like the Andy Williams show or one of these really middle-of-the-road musical variety shows on network television. And it would go back to the earliest days of Paul's solo career yeah. and he did a film clip for Mary Had a Little Lamb and they played that clip on this show and they ridiculed it oh, you know, yeah. look, look what the, this beetle this long haired freak has been reduced to doing now uh, isn't that crazy and I remember thinking why would you do that yeah uh, yeah well you know they like to build people up and tear people down I guess right but yeah and, I, and I've seen McCartney every time he comes through or I saw him at Desert Trip last year you anybody who has seen Paul McCartney knows that when towards the end of the set he finally gets into Hey Jude mm. and you get to the na 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 na's part yeah uh, that whole experience has healing properties I've yes. seen people throw away their crutches because it feels oh, so good still, it is a holy experience it again, is right yeah there is there is there is nothing like I was on the the field at Coachella. Yeah. And there's about, I don't know, 50,000 people yeah. all singing along with a chorus. Oh, amazing. That's a, a life enriching experience for yeah. sure. Yeah. I remember seeing him in, in Toronto. Nothing like that. I saw him at the ACC, I think maybe six, seven years ago. And uh, I, he, it was almost like a storyteller's thing. So he would play a, a song and then afterwards he would tell a story about it, you know, and he, he talked about Blackbird and how he and John used to fool around with that in the parlor of his home when they were just kids. And stuff like that. It, it's almost like you, you felt like you were at his house. Mm-hmm. And he was just playing just for you. He's such he a was so, person. He was so comfortable on stage. It's yeah. like, you know, I'm a Beatle. I'm one of the greatest songwriters ever. And you're not. Yeah. And I'm cool with it, and I want to share it with you. Exactly. And uh, I talked to him once. I was at a press conference, and I yeah. got to ask a question. So I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> what kind of question am I going to ask Paul McCartney? Yeah who has been asked every single question that has ever been thought of <laughs> and who uh, 
you know, his, his words and actions and everything has been parsed, you know, a billion times. Oh, yeah. What can I ask him? Oh, I have it. Um, he had just gotten married to Heather Mills. Okay. So my, here's, here's my question. Uh, congratulations on your married, marriage to, to Heather. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, did you have a band or a DJ at your, uh, at your wedding? Oh, good question. A band, of course. Yeah. I said, do you think they were intimidated? <laughs> he looks at me and goes, no, why would they be? <laughs> that was the, exchange, that the extent of the exchange. But he was, he was genuinely puzzled. Like, why would that band be intimidated playing for me and George and Ringo and Eric Clapton and, you know, all <laughs> Jeff Beck and all my other friends? It, I, it's a normal gig, right? <laughs> of course. Um Okay, so next you've got uh, another British group here, Stone Roses, and uh, it's also their debut album. I think that yep. this comes from I Am The Resurrection. Yeah, that's the very last song on the album. Um, that was a record that shocked everybody with its freshness and familiarity. Mm -hmm. When it was, came out in May of 1989, maybe March of 89, but it was that spring, and we were coming out of an era in the West, in, in North America anyway, of, of, of heavy-duty classic rock mm -hmm. uh, and hair metal and um, stuff that had really, I'd really lost any kind of affinity or touch with. Okay. Uh, Stone Rose has come along with this mix of basically psychedelic dance guitar music that was just so... Uh, amazingly cool I, I remember when she bangs the drums came in on a 12 inch single on the silver tone label came into the radio station i sat in the music department and i listened to it over like in a row 10 times wow because i just like, never heard anything like this before and the album comes out finally get a hold of the record and uh here comes she uh i am the resurrection the best part of the song is the last half yeah where they get into this long gorgeous jam and Rennie and Manny the rhythm section really get to show what they can do as John Squire does his stuff over top and Ian Brown's off you know banging a tambourine or whatever yeah but that last half hour or the last half hour last half of that song runs about four minutes and change yeah is is one of the greatest jams ever committed to record as far as I'm concerned yeah that's great yeah I like that one too um your next one, I noticed as I was looking at your list, and, and every one of your eight songs, except one, is British. Yeah, I am a big fan of that sound uh, and the attitude that comes out of the UK. Um, what the UK did, manages to do again and again, is take the sounds of North America and play it back to us in a different way. Yes. So it is not, it's familiar. Uh -huh. We're acquainted with the idiom yeah. but there's always a spin on it mm -hmm. that's different and fresh to our ears yeah. and I honestly believe that nobody loves music more than the English I mean if you walk through London there's music everywhere and it's not it's 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 not old no it's it's important music that's being played. You know, you rarely hear elevator music or instrumental music. You hear the music of the nation mm -hmm. and it's fantastic, and, yeah. and I, I, I really do appreciate the, the music culture. I mean, look at the, the, the music writers yeah. that England has, has given us. The, all the great music magazines and music writing. Yeah. Uh, 
again, it's Enemy, Mojo, all that stuff. Yeah. Record collector, The Face, Id, um, Q, uh, Sounds, Enemy, yes. Melody Maker. I mean, yeah. a lot of these aren't around anymore, but I mean, the amount of information that came out of the UK and the amount of analysis and that sort of hothouse environment. I mean, there's only 60 million people in all of the UK, and if you look just at England, uh, there's substantially less. Well, there's there's a lot in the very, you know, especially in yeah, London, exactly. And and people live in tiny places, so they're forced out into public places. Yep. A lot of those public places are are bars and pubs, yeah, and and clubs, and and that just fuels the whole music thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're gonna go through the rest of your songs, but uh, I was gonna ask you about David Bowie because I noticed his absence in your list. Uh, yeah, uh, I I think we'll take Bowie as red. Okay. We'll take him as a, as a guy. I think the, my favorite Bowie song is Heroes. Yes. Although I um, really do appreciate some of the, the weirder stuff that he did on, on Low with like Warsaza and, yeah. and a few others. Um, but I've always been a Bowie fan. I, I'm not going to put... I can't... If you would ask me artists, yeah. that's one thing. Yeah. If you ask me songs, um, just put you know, Bowie is red. Yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next tune, a killer song, "Live and Let Die." Talked about it before. Paul McCartney. And yeah, this is one of his 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 um, encore songs when he plays live. Yeah, and I honestly, that's the greatest Bond theme. I'm uh, sorry, Sheena Easton, Shirley Bassey, Carly <laughs> Simon, Duran Duran, Chris Cornell, Aha, and everybody else. Uh, no, this this is you know the first Roger Moore, Moore movie, 1973. I mean, it's it some really tortured words in this ever-changing world in which we live in. Like, come on, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> but it's. Uh, I remember hearing it for the first time on in the movie, but then it became a hit on the radio. And I back then it was all AM radio. Yeah. And then somewhere along the line, I went and bought the forty-five and put it on my brand new stereo. And I was amazed at the depth of the production. Mm-hmm. With uh, you know the, the orchestra in the background, yes, exactly. which really doesn't come through on AM radio, but it was it's a big, it's a big song. Yes, and it still sounds good today. I mean, a lot of the songs I think on this list are timeless in the sense that mm-hmm. it, they could have been recorded yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would go with "Live and Let Die" as being the same sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. I uh, I always think back to that story about uh, you know Guns N' Roses obviously covered this. And Paul McCartney took his daughter to see a Guns N' Roses show, and they played this. And so he leaned over to Stella, and, and in her ear he said, you know, your dad wrote this song. And she looked up at him and said, whatever, Dad. <laughs> well, she's pro- she was probably told that a lot. <laughs> here's Hey Jude. Yeah, your dad wrote that. Yeah, well, Dad, whatever. Yeah, exactly. yeah, here's Lockwood. Yeah, okay, wait a Okay, here's Yesterday. Oh, Dad, please, not again. Get over yourself, Dad. <laughs> Uh, your next tune here is uh, by the Rolling Stones. I love the Stones. Give me shelter. Great pick. Yeah. Again, notice all these songs. A lot of these songs are long. Yeah. Uh, Give me shelter is one of those songs that develops very, very slowly. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, by the time Mick sings, we're almost a minute into the song. Yes. You let the 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 song allows Keith and Brian to establish the mood yes. of the song and it's 
if you look back into the history of the song, they had a real hard time coming up with it because they had all kinds of different rhythms for it. Oh, really? They weren't sure exactly what the beat should be. Should it be sort of more bouncy? Should it be faster? Should it be slower? Should it have a like a reggae beat? But no, they flattened it all out and turned into this super menacing thing that yeah. took on additional ominousness after yeah. Altamont. Yeah. Um, and the the woman at the end... Mary Clayton. Uh, Mary Clayton, who's called in, just come in and just sort of do some vocalizing like four in the morning something like that yeah and uh yeah great thanks bye and you know she was paid 50 pounds or whatever it yeah, was yeah but um there, she screams in a couple of places towards the end yes when she's going with the old children uh again the it's raw off the floor unprocessed before pro tools Emotion, yes, and you know you listen to a lot of Stone stuff. There's, there's, it's they're sloppy. There's lots of mistakes. Yeah. The the timing is is often off, and you know Keith is like you know whatever kind of doing his yeah. Keith thing, and 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 Mick is not what you would call a, a conventional singer, and then you have people like Mary Clayton coming in just basically improvising on the spot. Yes, and all those. And I'm using air quotes here. Flaws yeah. add up to such great beauty. Yes, and that's part of the reason I love "Gimme Shelter" is because, well, every almost every Stone song feels like it's about to fly apart. Yes, but the, it never does. It's just so loose. That's what makes them great. It's just so loose and uh, at the same time tight, which makes no sense at all. But if you listen to a song like "Shattered." Yes. You know, the only thing that's keeping that, that song together is Charlie Watts. Yes. Everything else is just like all over the place. Yeah. And it's 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 just a fantastic bit of recording and performance. Yeah. And that's the thing I love about the Stones, particularly during that period of those four great records, that um, it, it, you're right. It feels like it's going to go off the rails at any time, but that's kind of the beautiful ugliness behind mm-hmm. that. You can hear people talking in the background. Yeah, you know, listen to a song like "Sweet Virginia." You know, it was recorded at like five in the morning, probably, and you know, everybody's kind of sitting around and doing whatever they had done, chemically or whatever it was, right? But it's just that is the grit and the, the veracity that I love mm-hmm. about the Rolling Stones. The imperfections, yes. Yeah. And going back to to Mary Clayton, that that bit where you can hear her voice crack, and if you listen really closely, you can hear Jagger in the background go, "Whoa." It's really, really cool, yeah. but you don't get that stuff. No, anymore. it's you know it's, what I mean. You don't because everything is is processed and edited and pro tools yeah, and auto tuned to the nth degree because yeah. that is the trend right now. Yeah, uh, where the the recording has to be better than real life, mm-hmm. uh, and that's fine. I mean, there are, are are people who you know watch the Voice and American Idol and X Factor, yeah. and they you know, appreciate this kind of singing and this kind of performance and this kind of songwriting. And Max Martin has made an awful lot of money doing this sort of stuff, which is great. Yeah. But there's still something to be said for, you know, four or five people in a room, mic'd up, playing their hearts out Mm -hmm. and not worrying about uh, making any kind of mistakes. I'll give you my best example. Yeah. Is uh, Guy Stevens was the producer of The Clash's London Calling. Mm -hmm. And Guy Stevens was... Well, he was a great weirdo. Okay. And, and the Clash wanted somebody who was going to shake them up yeah. and get them out of their comfort zone because they had gotten pretty comfortable yeah. with, uh, with the first couple of albums. So uh, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to warm up in the studio today. This is mm-hmm. in August of 1979. 
uh, run through a song. Pick a song. Uh, we'll do uh, we'll do our cover of Brand New Cadillac. Okay. Great. Okay, let's warm up with it. Go play. So one, two, three, four. Band goes, plays. You know, two minutes, ten seconds later, it's over. And as soon as it's done, uh, Stevens hits the talk back and says, "Right, that's a take." What, what, what are you talking about? It's, it's, we listen to it. The, the tempos are wrong. We, the, the longer the song goes on, the faster we speed up. Steven says, all rock and roll speeds up. Next song. Perfect. And that's what we hear on London Calling. That is so great. A rehearsal take off the floor. Yes. And you listen to it, and it gets faster and faster and faster. <laughs> but the energy builds up, and towards the end, Bill, uh, Joe Strummer is just you know, bawling the, 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 the lyrics. And the power is... You know, almost indescribable. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know that's what I—that's the kind of stuff I like because it's so raw, yeah. because it's so real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And you know, the Rolling Stones. Getting back to them is—you was, know—I think their greatest strength, um, based on what you're saying earlier, is that they kind of took American black music and gave it back to America. Again, yeah, they—they were—they were an R&B band. Yeah, uh, an R&B band that were loved by by the mods and the suedeheads. Yeah, and. Uh, they eventually, I mean, Howlin' Wolf was, I mean, their hero. Yes. Uh, and they eventually twisted that R&B feel into something that was completely their own. I mean, you listen to, you know, Satisfaction or you listen to, uh, you know, Brown Sugar. Yeah. And there's, there's elements of it in there, but you've got to dig kind of deep you know what I mean yeah yeah but yeah that's swagger there's no swagger. other band that sounds like the Rolling Stones no. and that's what every band tries to do yes where do you find that chemistry where do you find those players where do you find that attitude where do you find those collective experiences that create something that no one else has ever created before yeah and it, you, you can't force it it has to happen and, and that's the thing they sound organic without trying to sound organic yeah. and naturally right yeah. and, and, and that, that's frustrated me you know over the years when you hear these kind of new bands that are well it's the next Stones I don't know if you can legitimately ever ever say that no it's been a while since you've heard a band that uh, like ooh they have their own kind of feel to them don't they but it's hard. I mean, rock and roll's been around since the middle 1950s, and it's hard not to be derivative today because so much of the ground has been trod upon very, very effectively. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, next tune, Alan, is uh, by Pink Floyd, and it's called Mother. The reason I picked this song, last song, side one of The Wall, yep. is because I think as a technical recording goes mm -hmm. this is one of the best Pink Floyd was having a lot of trouble with the wall concept so they brought in Canadian producer Bob, Bob Ezrin, Ezrin and Bob help us sort this out I mean you did stuff with Kiss you did stuff with Alice Cooper can you can you help us make sense of this and and Ezrin did um, you know rearranging the song uh, the song order and helping with finishing up the recording and the editing and mixing all the rest of it and I remember, I, okay, you asked me earlier, if you are a Beatles fan, you're either a John guy or a Paul guy. Right. If you're a Pink Floyd fan, you're either a Dave guy or a Roger guy. Exactly. And I'm a Roger guy. Okay. Uh, although I really, really respect David Gilmore, there was something about what Roger Waters did bringing some desperate emotion to Pink Floyd. Yeah. Starting with, I guess, Animals. Okay. And then really peaking with, um, with the wall. Yes. 
and I remember seeing Roger play. This is the Radio Chaos Tour, our yes. solo tour, 1987. He played at the Kingswood Music Theater in Toronto, and he peppered the set with some Pink Floyd songs. Okay. And he, one of the songs he played was Mother. Mm. I have never heard a sound system that clean, that clear, that loud than when he played Mother that night. Really? It was... I can still hear it in my head and thinking, I remember thinking to myself, how is he doing this? Yeah. Because back in 87, sound reinforcement in concerts hadn't, it wasn't nearly what we have today with curved arrays and um, subwoofers and uh, bi-amplification and all the other things that go into a modern sound system. Mm -hmm. They were still stacking boxes on either side of the stage. Yeah. And Roger Waters was always, still is, a is, is a stickler for perfection and when it comes to the, to sound yeah and he had all it was him a little bit of effect on his voice and his guitar until the band kicks in and wow so that's why it's there it's because that that always reminds me of that that night in august of 1987 yeah now that uh that song for me um, I'd read that he, it was a very troubling song for him just because he grew up with a single mom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his, he was explaining the song to somebody and he said, well, my mom, she was a single mom. She was very overprotective. That's where the whole idea for the wall came from. And, uh, she made it very, she made, she made her controlling views very difficult in terms of things like her beliefs, like, you know, things like sex. So when you're growing up as a kid, I was very confused and you can hear that coming through mm. in the song. And that's one thing I've always loved about Pink Floyd is, again, that, that veracity. Yeah, that real uh, raw emotion that's expressed yeah. in... Uh, it's expressed lyrically, Yeah, but it doesn't, the lyrics don't work without the way it was, it's framed in, in the music. Yeah. Um, that's I'm going in, in the fall, in September, I'm going to England for the Victoria and Albert Pink Floyd exhibit. Cool. Uh, because you know they've it's called oh, what's it called i can't remember but anyway it's a it's 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 like the bowie exhibit ah. and uh apparently it is fantastic yeah so and they've they've apparently remixed part of some of pink floyd's music in it's way beyond 5.1 okay uh they've remixed it they did this in abbey road uh and it's remixed in some sort of 360 degree three-dimensional mix really? space so you sit in this defined area yeah and the mute without having headphones on the music somehow envelops you wow i gotta hear i i that's the bet i don't know what that sounds that's like, like a dream scenario for well, a it does. Floyd. yeah you know and i think i think well they had a, every road's best engineers work on this wow. and there's a special array i can't remember how many speakers they use and you know that it's you know giant B&W speakers or, or yeah, something with yeah. you know class A amplification it's going to be I can't wait to hear it oh no kidding yeah uh, I was saying I was in London last year and I went on one of those old rock and roll tours those are great the, aren't they you know oh absolutely yeah. the guys that you know I don't know if he's probably he's some old grizzled man he's his roadie for God knows what band but he's driving us along in this little van and he takes us through um, you know the, this road and so on one uh, side of the street is the studio where they recorded the wall and directly across the street is a, a kid's school. And so he tells the story about how the guys, in, or I, I think... I think that was Olympic Studios. Yes. Yes. 
Um, so I think it was Roger Waters who said, you know what? We're going to go across the school and ask if we can get any kids to sing on the chorus of the wall, right? So literally they walk across, talk to the principal, gather up a bunch of kids, bring them back, sing the bit. Nobody knows if it's going to work and, and kind of bring them back. And, and that's the story of why kids sing the chorus of, you know. And it, you hear the playground noises in the song as yes, well. Yes, exactly. So can you see this is this is an argument for why you still need professional recording studios. Yeah. You can't do that in a bedroom. You can't no. do that in your house. Exactly. That's only if you have all the bells and whistles and room. Yeah. And microphones and outboard uh, gear and, and time to figure out what you're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. And Ezrin had a hand in that. Yeah. Right? You think, I, I think about stuff... Uh, you know, like on Kiss Destroyer and the That's else. his kids, by the way, on, on God of Thunder. Yes. That's his two kids. Running around with ray guns, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so and he's got Peter Chris at the bottom of some loading dock. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why the drums on God of Thunder sound so big. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Alan, your last tune is the non-Brit selection here. It's uh, Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. Yep. Uh, two minutes, 53 seconds. Yep of pure snotty energy mm -hmm. it's it's a mix of punk it's a mix of rap it's hip-hop it's I, I i don't know listen the song was in 90 94 i guess it came out yeah and again listen to it today and there's nothing that sounds like that these yes. are three guys uh who were before they discovered rap were were punks and we're very much into hardcore, and they kind of bring that out for, for this song. And again, I've never heard a guitar sound like that before. Mm -hmm. Never heard you know that kind of vocal delivery over that kind of guitar sound ever before. Yeah. And uh, again, the, the, the drumming is frantic without being out of control. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you listen to the rhythm section, it's something that could, you would normally, if you take it apart, strip it down to the rhythm section, it, it, it's something that you would, might have created on a Roland 808. Yeah. Because of the, the, you know, the, the way, where, especially where the, the kick drum comes in. It's just one of those songs that whenever it comes on and I'm in the car, I turn it up. I yeah. have never not turned up Sabotage. <laughs> never. Yeah, it's a, you know, for me, the Beastie Boys always uh, had that very impressive vision where they made choices that you'd say, I don't think that's going to work, but it works. Right? Well, the best example is going from album one to album two. So, yes. License to Hill, big, you know, stupid frat boy record, yeah. you know, with Monkey, uh, uh, Brass, Brass Monkey, Monkey. and uh, Fight for Your Ride, and, you know, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, and, you know, Girls. You know, it's a goofy, yeah. fun, frat boy rock rap album yes then comes Paul's Boutique yeah which I remember when it came into the radio station we were disappointed really we were honestly disappointed because this isn't what we thought we were going to get more you know she's on it or, yeah. or another you know, something from 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 more music like we saw on, on License, License to Hill yeah so what uh, about Shadrach well, no, we, we, we just didn't get it. Yeah. And, you know, people forget that that album was a critical failure. Yes. Their record label was so terribly disappointed in the whole thing. I think the president of the record company actually lost fired. his job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and today you would never have, you would never be able to make that record again because you would spend 
two, three million dollars clearing the samples. Oh, on. for sure, yeah. But uh, in in retrospect, that album was so far ahead of its time mm-hmm. that it it took almost a decade for people to realize, oh, I see where you guys were going with yes. this. You were just a little. You were a couple of grades ahead of us. Yes, exactly. And we just didn't get it then, but now, now we do. And now it's considered to be uh, a classic, oh, uh, a milestone, a uh, very important record. Just kind of like, you know, when Bowie released Heroes, yeah. that album was a failure. Yes. But over, over years, there has been... Actually, Heroes, Low, and Lodger yeah. um, were at the time considered to be something that like Bowie's lost his mind. Yeah, well, I, I, he'd gone to Berlin and kind yeah. of secluded himself. He was heavily into cocaine at the time, right? Yeah. And uh, it takes sometimes it takes a while before you realize the value of something. And now Heroes, the song itself, mm-hmm. is one of Bowie's most beloved songs when it was released as a single. And it was released in three languages. Yeah, It was English, French, and German. Yeah. It was a failure. It yeah. didn't do anything. But now... You know, now that, he's, that we're talking about, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and you know, Bowie's gone, and 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 the power in his voice, and the Robert Frippery of his guitars, and yeah. it's 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 one of the songs that people remember with great fondness now. Yes. Same thing with with the the Low album. People thought that 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 was just way too weird, especially yeah, Side yeah. Two, which was all instrumental. Yeah. But he was simply he was anticipating something that was coming three and four years ahead. But that's what he was best at, I thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. The guy was clearly a genius. Oh, he, he completely. Yeah. And and in in the seventies, again, we can look at the parallels between the Beatles, who released all that great music from sixty three to seventy. Yeah. And Bowie, you know, pretty much seventy one to eighty. Yeah. Was his his glory years, and he was yes. releasing two albums a year. Oh yeah, yeah. And he doesn't remember making Station to Station at all because <laughs> he was so coked and heroined out. Yeah. Uh, but, and he went through all these different personas and it, uh, it, you know, his voice changed. I mean, you compare his voice on on Ziggy Stardust mm-hmm. with what we hear on Scary Monsters. Yes. It's just almost a different guy. Yeah, yeah. It almost dropped a, a full octave. Yeah, he yeah. went from being this alto to a baritone. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He had always fascinated me with, uh, you know, kind of, you know, going from genre to genre and, and really owning them. I mean, you know, he started out as a folk guy mm-hmm. then he was a glam guy. Well, he, if you, Bowie, for Bowie, music was the means to the end. It was a performance and he would adopt whatever role and sound suited the performance he had planned. Yeah. So... He was a performer, actor, character first, mm-hmm. musician second. Yeah. And he well, he admitted that a number of times. Yeah. He had something to say artistically. The vehicle was music. And with the different things he wanted to say, he changed the music and yeah. himself. Yeah. But did it so credibly. I mean, people have tried to do that before, and it just doesn't come across as... It seems desperate. No, it, it does. And, and uh, I think it has to do with the time when there was so much mystery yes. in our pop stars. I mean, you either listened to them on the radio, listened to them on record, 
or went to see them live. You never saw them on TV. Exactly. There were no music videos. Yeah. You read about them and you heard rumors and stories and hearsay. Yeah. So, you know, the, there was this, this whole mystery that, and mystique that built up around some of the bigger pop stars. Exactly. And that played into your love of them. That's right. And he, I think, was a master of that kind of manipulation in that way. He went through the whole androgyny thing and... Oh, yeah. You know, and really got everybody's attention. He was... He knew what he was doing. Oh, he totally did. Totally knew what he was doing. And he was interesting that he was never... The only time I think he was ever really motivated by money was when he signed the deal with... uh, to, to do Let's Dance. Yes. And that was a big moneymaker record for him. Yeah, 83. But everything else, I mean, you look at an album like Lodger, that is not commercial. I mean, RCA must have looked at that and went, ah, you know, okay, there's DJ, that's one hit. And then, what do you mean the whole entire second side of Lodger, or of Low is, is instrumental? Like, it's just so bleak. Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> But you know, the, the, meanwhile, not only is he re- releasing those albums, he's he's resurrecting Iggy Pop's career, and they do two yes. albums in six months. Exactly. And then he goes on tour playing keyboards for Iggy. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just uh, phenomenal that you know, guys. I just um, musicians are not like us. There is something in their brains, something in their hearts that we will never ever understand because they feel in much deeper than we do. Yes, and a blessed few of them are able to express those feelings in ways that no one else can. So let's when, when somebody like a Bowie or a Prince or a Chris Cornell or somebody dies mm-hmm. and we grieve, it's not that we're grieving because we knew them. We grieve because through their music they helped us know ourselves. Yes, and as a result. A little part of us dies. Yes. You know, we get over it, mostly. But, you know, I still think... I remember when Joey Ramone died. I mean, that was really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, people tell me uh, they have the same sort of thing about Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Uh, a remarkable number of people still say the same about Shannon Hoon of Blind Melon. Mm. Uh, Scott Weiland was an interesting case because we knew what kind of lifestyle he ran yeah. or he led and... There was a certain inevitability to his death. Chris Cornell dying, it's like, that's an unreasonable death. There has yeah, to be a reasonable explanation for it. Yeah. So it's, and, and when Bowie, well, when Bowie went, Bowie was never supposed to die. Bowie was supposed to be immortal. Bowie exactly. was supposed to be with us forever. Exactly. Um, Prince's death was another one. So how does a clean living, teetotaling, non-drug taken, vegetarian Jehovah's Witness suddenly die in an elevator? Yeah. And it turns out that there was a very good reason for it. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, we will, we do feel these, these, these deaths as real. Yeah. And we do mourn them. Yeah. Yeah. No. Very well said. Music tells us so much about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well said. Alan, thank you so much for coming in today. Oh, really you're very welcome. It. I enjoyed the chat. Hope I didn't talk too much. You did not talk. I could do this for hours with you. This has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, This has been Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Alan Cross, and No Sleep Till So Great. Till next time, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till So Great. Leftover people and all my favorite people are broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.